0: Pray together. Father God, as we consider this part of your word in Matthew 22, we pray, Lord God, that you might help us to understand it, me to preach it faithfully and clearly, and that you might help us to know how to respond. By your spirit, give us the power and the conviction to do so. May we respond to Jesus in the way that you ask of us. and In his name we pray, Father. Amen. Yes, please do keep your Bibles open at Matthew 22 from verse 15. Ebenezer Scrooge in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is the ultimate stingy person, isn't he? You know, someone who, the ultimate person, ultimate example of keeping your money to yourself. But, But I think for most of us, we find it hard to give up our rights, our advantages, our things, our money. We find it hard too. We like to keep what we have and use what we have often for our own benefits. Isn't that why charities are struggling to find volunteers now? Why we feel tempted to tweak the numbers on our tax return and why we struggle to be generous to others. And while today Jesus will ask us to give to the government and to God, I hope that we will be so thankful for Jesus that, and what he's done that we'll do that gladly. And I hope that in the end, I will see that it benefits us too. It's worth it. We're in this series through Matthew's Gospel, chapters 21 to 25. We've seen so far that the Jewish leaders, they want to shut down Jesus even kill him. Christ had shared three parables that had revealed their murderous hearts and the judgment that was coming, but they refused to repent and turn to God. And now they go on the offensive again with their words. And my first brief point is liars, they're liars. The Pharisees were religious leaders that everyone looked up to because they're really concerned with, with keeping God's law, God's commands. And verse 15 tells us though they're trying to trap Jesus. We also see they're willing to compromise. for they're proud of their separateness, thinking they're better than others, that they're more devoted to God. But here we see them sending their students along to question Jesus, but also along with the Herodians. We don't know much about the Herodians, except that they are represented the interests of Herod and his dynasty. They supported King Herod, and through that, the Roman Empire, something the Pharisees do not do. But it seems that they're more committed to getting Jesus in trouble. They'll even work with their enemies to do that. In verse 16, they call Jesus teacher and say, We know you're truthful, and... You teach the word of God truly. You don't care about what others think. And that's not claiming that, they're not saying that Jesus, you're inconsiderate, but that he's not influenced by other people's opinions. Also, Jesus doesn't fear people or seek their praise. They're acknowledging that he's not biased. He's not a people pleaser. And all those things they say about Jesus are true, but the Pharisees do not believe that Jesus teaches the truth. So they're lying. The Pharisees are liars. Jesus knows their malicious hearts, we're told. He knows they're being hypocrites, verse 18. We'll think more about that in the next chapter, 23. But for now, just notice that Jesus sees through them. He sees through their lies. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe he speaks true words from God or about God. And isn't that a serious reminder that God sees through our words? He sees what goes on in our hearts, our minds. He, Jesus perceives our intent, our motives. So if you're flattering or exaggerating or misleading or lying with your words, God knows. He knows if you appear a Christian on Sunday today and if you, if you won't be tomorrow or on Saturday nights. He knows if you say you're a Christian and then you live the opposite way at home. He knows if you say something at work or at school or at uni and then you think the opposite, do the opposite. Jesus really was truthful and we who follow him should be truthful like him. We shouldn't judge people on the basis of their appearances. We shouldn't care more about what others think than what God thinks. So I ask, does something need to change for you? Please pray for that. Point two is life with God. And what I mean by that, I'll, sorry, life to God, life to God. And what I mean by that, I'll explain shortly. Jesus asks, verse 17, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He makes clear that he knows they're trying to test and trap him and he asks for a denarius. That was a silver coin equivalent to about a day's wage. This poll tax that's referred to was what the Roman Empire charged all grown men to pay once a year, really for the privilege of living in their empire under their authority and on their land. Mind you, the the Jews believed that the land of Israel was still their land and so many Jews resented the tax, especially the Zealots and the Pharisees did. In addition, the, the inscription on the coin said this, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. The coin asserted blasphemous words, Caesar's claim to be divine, and, and surely Jesus wouldn't support that. And so it's entrapment. For, for if Jesus says, yes, pay it, so he's probably going to be hated by the people. And if he said, don't pay it, he'll be hated by the Herodians who happened to be there. And by and get in trouble with the Roman authorities too. And yet with profound wisdom. Jesus proceeds to say give then to Caesar the things that are Caesars and give to God the things that are God's So the coin had Caesar's face and inscription on it and he's saying give it back to him The word this word give here usually means give up give give over even give back And so yes give him his coin We'll think more about the implications of this shortly But Jesus also says, give to God the things that belong to God. Well, Jesus doesn't explain it here. Please consider, what does belong to God? An old hymn that I know says, This earth belongs to God, the world, its wealth, and all its people. It's words from Psalm 24. In other words, since God created the world and everything in it, as Acts chapter 17 says, it belongs to him. And I suggest if artist Claude Monet painted this painting, which he did, it belonged to him. We've been made by God. We belong to him. He knows what's best. Trouble is, we think we know what's best. And we ignore God's word. It's like I buy a coffee machine and I choose to ignore the manufacturer's instructions. If I do and I fail to use it properly or clean it properly, it'll soon break and stop working. We do that with our own lives. Our lives belong to God. God. He's our maker. He knows what's best, but but we don't live like that. We turn our backs on God. We run our lives our own way. We think we know what's best. We sin. And our sin leads us to being broken and dysfunctional. But God, our maker, didn't leave us his creatures lost, broken, and destined only for the garbage dump or the furnace. God came to us In his son, he entered the broken, ruined creation in the person of Jesus to fix up what we'd ruined. Jesus bore our penalty and died to give us life eternal life with wholeness and hope and joy and peace and purpose. As this bridge illustration shows. If we've put our trust in Christ, we move from one side to the other. We move from death to life. where We're saved and promised life, eternal life, renewed life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 and 20 goes on to say, You are not your own. For you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. It means your life. What was the price paid? What was the life of the Lord Jesus. He sacrificed his life to save and to reconcile and to restore, to restore you, Christian. And so, believers belong to God, doubly so, made by God and saved by God. As we sang earlier, made by God, for God alone. Because we belong to God, made by him, saved by him, we're part of his redeemed people, we live for him. We ought to live for him. We give our lives to him. We give our lives to God. We offer ourself, as Romans 12 says, as a living sacrifice to please God out of a thankful response to him and his mercy. I hope that makes sense. And so this giving to God, this living to God and living to God and for God, it's, it's an all-of-life thing. It's about hearts and minds, body and soul. It's given to God to live his way. And we're going to think more about that next Sunday. But it's living to please our creator and our savior with our words, our wants, our actions, our lives. It's going to mean we'll show love and integrity, godliness and kindness and service. It's an all of life thing. Again, I ask, is there something you're convicted that needs to change? Because you can't be a Christian on Sunday and not on Monday, on Saturday night at that party. Or maybe at the moment you're a student facing exams. Maybe you're a worker struggling under your load or a parent struggling with your children. In all of these things, I pray that you will do all things for the glory of God. Work hard as to the Lord, for it is the Lord you're serving. Colossians 3, 23. In your struggle, pray for God's wisdom and grace, the strength and peace for each day. Pray that you will trust him in the moment and with the outcome. Pray you'll trust him and not be anxious and not be irritable or impatient or or unkind with others around you. Knowing I was bought at a price and so living to please God, it also means using our money God's way. Being sacrificially generous with what God has given us. Sacrificially generous to others, to the needy, to to the gospel. Can you see that even the way you spend or give your money and the taxes you pay or you don't pay, the way we respond to government authorities, it's all included. So as Christian people, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's because we give God our all. It's part of giving God our all. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In Romans 13, Paul elaborates on this principle and what it means, making clear that it's part of, flowing on from chapter 12, verse 1, it's part of our offering ourselves to God. He says, let everyone submit to governing authorities since God instituted them. Governments are responsible, responsible to provide an orderly society and police and Roads and services and justice in the courts and, and our submission to them includes paying taxes. So yes, that means those of us who are adults and who work, it means being fully honest on our tax returns and on our timesheets and, and with Centrelink. You deal with them as frustrating as that can be and, and I know. It means paying our bills, paying the fine. Paying our dues. And that submission also means we're not going to speed or use our phone when driving more. And from verse 7 there it means giving respect and honour to all we owe it to. Please understand that doesn't mean that we only respect the government leaders who deserve it by by their actions and their words and their policies, no. Remember, The Roman Caesars thought they were divine. They were gods, sons of gods. And they were foreign occupiers who, in time to come, would be persecuting Christians. And yes, they're not to be worshipped, but Jesus taught that tax was still to be owed to them. So we ought to respect and speak respectfully of our police. Other authorities and members of parliament, even when they do wrong, we disagree. Or even if if and when the time comes, even while we're disobeying them because we're called to sin, we still do so respectfully. Remember, God bought you at a supremely high price. Blood of Jesus. So does God want you to change anything? Your thinking, your behavior, to obey him when it comes to government. The end of Romans chapter 11 says of God, from him, through him, to him are all things. So God deserves the glory. He deserves to have us live for him give our whole lives to him, doesn't he? Point three is life with God. Having amazed and silenced the Pharisees, the Sadducees now try. It's like there's a tag team happening. Many Sadducees were priests. They only accepted the authority of the first five books of the Bible, the books that Moses wrote. Verse 23 tells us they didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed your soul died with your body at death. Carl Sagan was a famous astronomer and cosmologist and a famous atheist of the last century. Before he died, he said, I would love to believe that when I die, I will live again and that some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me will continue. I don't know of nothing to suggest, but it's more than just wishful thinking. Stephen Hawking, who's dead, regarded the brain as a computer and once said, there is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. It's a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. They, like the Sadducees, maybe you, maybe many of your friends, Believe when you die, that's it. You rot. So in verse 24, the Sadducees come to Jesus with a question. They try to show the absurdity of believing in a resurrection, a physical resurrection. They begin by referring to Moses' teaching in Deuteronomy 25, which we read earlier. And yes, if a man died, leaving no children, his brother or near relative was to marry his widow, so the dead man's name could continue through her children. I I think this would make you feel super uncomfortable, or super uncomfortable today to do that. But it was called Leveret Marriage, and it forms the background to Boaz, feeling obligated to marry Ruth, if you know that story, the book of Ruth. The questioners speak of seven brothers among us, so we wonder, I wonder if their story was hypothetical, this woman marrying seven brothers. For this woman, she had seven husbands die. She's left with no children. So the Sadducees ask, who's she going to be married to at the resurrection? It seems absurd to them. And Jesus replies, verse 29, they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. God certainly is powerful to raise the dead and do what he chooses. Actually, the Old Testament promised Physical resurrection too. So we're not talking about ghosts or souls floating around forever, but physical resurrection bodies, new resurrection bodies. Listen to what Job says, But I know that my Redeemer lives. Yes, Jesus does. At the end, he will stand on the dust. And even after my skin has been destroyed in death, yet I will see God in my flesh. Psalm 16, fulfilled firstly in Jesus. You will not abandon me to Sheol, you will follow, you will allow your faithful one, not allow your faithful one, to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy and at your right hand are eternal pleasures. I love the start of Daniel chapter 12 as well. speaks of the end. And says, there will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, some to disgrace and eternal contempt. The point is, the Old Testament taught truth of a promised resurrection. The Sadducees only believe the Pentateuch, remember, Genesis to Deuteronomy. So Jesus quotes a scripture from there for them. Verse 31, concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead but of the living. And Jesus is saying resurrection life was implied here. For in Exodus 3, verse 6, where this quote is from, remember that's hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob walked on earth. It's not that God was the God of Abraham. He is the God of Abraham, for Abraham still lives in God's presence in heaven. It's, it's not past tense, it's present tense. Unbroken fellowship continues between God and his saved people. Unbroken fellowship will continue between us believers and our Savior God. Resurrection and eternal life will be ours. And that's only because Christ died and rose again himself. In that Christ defeated death and the grave by his own resurrection from the dead now Romans chapter 8 tells us, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, which we receive by faith, remember, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. And this will happen when Jesus Christ returns. And so even from the Pentateuch, the Sadducees are rebuked and they're the ones left with egg on their faces. Resurrection of Jesus is the evidence, the supreme evidence for the resurrection, our resurrection. Jesus also says in verse 30 that in the resurrection, in heaven there'll be no marriage, for God's saved people will be like the angels. In the context here, that means that we won't be married or getting married like angels don't. We won't be isolated in marriages or families in the life to come because we'll all be part of God's big family. And there won't be any sex. That won't be anything to worry about. For remember, the love, joy, fulfillment of that, it points to it's perfectly fulfilled in and experienced in God's presence no greater joy being in his presence. As a single person in my teens and early 20s, I remember hoping that I'd get married before I die. But honestly, that's because I didn't. I don't think I really know still how good and amazing heaven will be. Life in the new creation better than sex and the joy of marriage we won't want or desire that human marriage either we won't need it for then we will be united with the groom in God's joyous exhilarating exhilarating presence always maybe for you you wonder about other things will there be ice cream in heaven or some other favourite thing that you're thinking of I don't know But if it's not going to be there, you won't miss it anyway. Because what you'll be experiencing will be better. Earthly marriage, earthly things will be like this old faded photograph. Compared to the high definition, bright megapixel colors of life in heaven. point is, incomparably, indescribably better. As the band Mercy Me sing, I can only imagine. Can only imagine. To be honest, brothers and sisters, I can't even really imagine. Or fully. What heaven will be like and the glory and joy of that. And please know our resurrection bodies will not be like some 80-year-old resurrected sorry, not resurrected, 80-year-old resuscitated body. It's if you're resuscitated and brought back to life in the same body. No, with not with the same wrinkles and scars and stiffness and sickness. No. They will, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that they will be, our bodies will be imperishable, immortal, glorious, powerful, spiritual. That's empowered by the Spirit. That is life with God. For all who've trusted in Jesus, that glorious resurrection is promised to us. Jesus' resurrection guarantees it. Life with God awaits. Jesus said in John chapter 6, my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. Four times in John chapter 6, Jesus says, if you believe in me, I will raise you up at the last day. So I ask, is your hope of resurrection life with God in heaven, is that hope sure and certain? I think there is a growing sense of hopelessness among many people today, young and old. I mean, with floods, famines, with wars and droughts elsewhere in the world, with COVID and mental health struggles, with abuse and broken families, there's so much anxiety and despair. But for we who believe and rest in Jesus and have been saved by him, it changes everything. We need to not forget that. This life is not all there is and it will not last forever. In Jesus is a person in whom we can rest our hope. I was introduced to an elderly man this week at an aged care home. He'd lost his wife, he'd lost his strength. But his Christ-centered faith and hope remained strong. And it inspired me to that too. Do you know anyone like that with strong faith and hope that inspires? In whatever weakness or illness, whatever grief or suffering, trial or temptation you are facing at the moment, remind yourself of what's to come. Tell yourself the truth that you, through trust in Jesus, can look forward to going to be with the Lord, which is better by far. Look forward with hope and certainty and joyful expectation of receiving a new glorious resurrection body. What a great and sure hope that is for Christ's people. And now, while you wait for that resurrection life with God, knowing that you are not your own, you were bought at a price, you Belong to your maker. Live for God. Go and live for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can know you through faith in your son. Been made by you. Saved by you through the finished work, the death and resurrection of your son, our savior. May we trust him more. Please grow our faith, our hope, and our commitment and desire to respond to you with love, and devotion, and our all. You're worthy, and you have promised us a glorious inheritance. So may we truly believe that and let it shape our lives and responses now. Amen.